Thanks for tuning in. My name is Chad Hagen. I'm the host of Deep Dive. And today we have Dr. Matthew Wylicky. Matthew is an earth science professor and a geochemist, and he is currently at the University of Alabama, soon to move to Colorado. He's resigning from UA. He was born in communist Poland. He talks about DEI and climate alarmism in academia. So I hope you enjoy. Matthew, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Chad. Thanks for having me. Can you uh, give us an introduction about your career and, and what's been going on? Yeah, sure. So um, I am a isotope geochemist by training. So I'm an earth scientist. I, I did my PhD at UCLA. Before that, I did a bachelor's in biology and cellular and biochemistry at UCSD in San Diego. And um, I've always wanted to be a scientist and a faculty member. My father was a faculty member for almost three decades. And so um, I got a offered a tenure track position at the University of Alabama after postdocing at UCLA for a couple of years and um, started as an assistant professor here in University of Alabama in 2016 and um, decided about two years ago that it wasn't exactly what I thought it was. It wasn't what my dad remembered it to be. Academia has changed pretty dramatically. And um, so I started discussing why I was leaving the profession and what I thought was wrong with it. And um, that kind of took off. And so um, it's gotten a little bit of attention recently. I guess you're leaving Alabama affects your tenure, right? Yeah. So I would be going up for tenure this year, but this decision was made close to two years ago now. And so I stayed on to finish out. I have a PhD student that I wanted to finish Mm -hmm. that's graduating this year. The school needed us to teach. My wife teaches there too. So they didn't have people to fill in. So we are more than happy to stay for a little bit longer just to make sure that we didn't, you know, leave them high and dry. And so um, we'll be leaving in August. So this is my last semester. There's two issues I've noticed that you've talked about on social media, and that's why I wanted to have you on. It's, it's DEI and then climate alarmism. What are you seeing at the University of Alabama within DEI? Well, I mean, it's really remarkable. DEI was always around. And at UCLA, I was pretty exposed to that because the UC system has gone pretty hard. We had to write right. diversity statements like that, even as graduate students or applying to anything. When I got to Alabama, we were a little bit sheltered from that up until about 2020. And then during the 2020 kind of you know revolution, cultural revolution and the George Floyd thing, you really saw DEI start to kind of infiltrate into the STEM sciences. It was a, a lot heavier in the humanities for a long time. And we were kind of insulated in STEM. And then all of a sudden in the last two years, or maybe three years, you've seen this dramatic increase in every decision, even in the STEM sciences, is framed through this lens of DEI. And actually, the National Academy of Scholars did a recent report and they showed that from 2020 to 2023, there was a five-fold increase in, in terminology that was associated with STEM on public university websites. And so there was just this real rapid infiltration of every decision in STEM, whether it's postdocs coming in, the graduate students, who we were accepting, who we wanted to hire as faculty members, what grants were available. All of a sudden, we saw NSF starting in the in the geosciences division funding things that they called cultural transformations in geoscience things that had nothing to do with understanding how the planet worked or had any sort of scientific basis 
for the original mission of the geoscience directorate, which is to understand processes on the planet to benefit humanity. These were completely different things. These were social science experiments. These were not physical science-based objectives. There was hundreds of millions of dollars being funneled into this stuff. And it just really opened my eyes that although I think it's probably well-intentioned stuff, I think people want to have an inclusive environment that makes sense. And I respect that completely. The outcomes were exactly the opposite. Students were self-isolating. They were going into tribes. Faculty members weren't collaborating as much. This was exactly doing the opposite of the intention. And I think we, you know, well-intentioned things can have bad consequences. And so I started to be a little bit vocal about that. And just asking questions or raising any of these issues, it makes you, especially if you're a white male, makes you a racist, essentially, automatically. And so there was a lot of instantaneous pushback. There was faculty members from the university calling me a racist flat out on social media. They tried to link me to some chalk markings about some anti-Semitic chalk writings that happened on campus. I never discussed that at all. I never touched on that. But it kind of proved my point that there are certain topics in academia, which is supposed to be a place where you have a freedom of exchange of ideas that you can't touch. And DEI is one of them. And climate is another one, especially in the earth sciences. These are forbidden subjects to even question or, or to even have a, any sort of open discussion about that's sufficient to be a heretic or a racist or a denier or whatever the term they want to call you. Yeah, I would say you're you're in the belly of the beast right there with DEI and and then being in earth sciences and and just raising some some pragmatic questions about the climate. You probably face a lot of opposition. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's on social media, it seems like I'm a, I'm the most hated person on the planet. But if I bump into people or I talk to people at conferences or I get emails, they're enormously positive. Um, The vast majority of interactions that I've had from colleagues or from people from other universities, even from people in in the corporate world that tell me about ESG and how much that has infiltrated the corporate side, they're enormously positive. But, you know, you, if you go to social media, it's, it's, you just, it looks like I'm the most hated person on the planet. But, um, you know, overall, I think that a lot of people agree with me they're just afraid to speak out because it really, I mean, it, 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 it's essentially career suicide. Right. And I guess you've kind of faced some smear campaigns to a degree, right? Yeah. There's been a couple articles written about me from some, you know, left-wing media outlets and things like that. It's always the same thing that, you know, he's a denier and that he, he denies this and that. And it's, yeah, I'm the first one that talks about climate change and how climate has changed through history because as an earth scientist, that's kind of what we do. We, we look at the rocks and the fossils and the ice cores, and that tells us about the past climate history on the planet. And so I, I argue that we should be adapting to climate change and learning how to live on a dynamic planet. I would argue that I'm the one that accepts climate change. Mm-hmm. And those that think that we're going to control it somehow by reducing a trace gas in the environment, and that's going to change the weather, that's, to me, the denying the dynamics of a chaotic climate system And so I just find it very ironic that I'm the one that's called a denier when I talk about the vast amount of climate change that has happened over the 4.5 billion years that the planet has existed. But usually when you don't have an argument, you go to ad hominem attacks and things like that. I remember just from the, the financial world when ESG first came online. I mean, clearly it's been accepted in Europe. Europe's a totally different place than America. 
But when when DE, I'm sorry, when ESG was first coming down the down the pipes, it was being touted as, hey, this is a better way to manage, you know, the the enterprise. And by the way, there's there's supporting metrics that show if enterprises kind of accept ESG governance policies and stuff like that, it's a better investment. And then, you know, to 2020 and everything else, it becomes this ESG is also about accepting DEI. And by the way, global warming is the Western market's fault from from taking advantage of colonies and from just kind of polluting the earth to disenfranchising indigenous people. And the list goes on and on and on. That's been really fascinating to me from a financial perspective, because it's like none of those fit into the bottom line of finance or business or investments. Right. And so if if that's fully accepted at face value, it's kind of it's kind of like game over as far as economics are concerned. Yeah, it's very counterintuitive to a capitalist system. And I think that that's it's becoming pretty self-evident now that ESG, climate change, DEI policies, this is a mask for essentially what is a redistribution of wealth and trying to change income inequality. It's an attack on capitalism. I argue that if we look just over the last couple decades, maybe two or three decades, it's capitalist markets that have lifted to close to 3 billion people out of abject poverty. We have some of the lowest famine rates we've ever had. The human condition is dramatically improved. And when we look at, I teach a course called sustainability. When we look at things like mortality rates and fertility rates and education for women, particularly life expectancy, vaccination rates, all of those things are tied directly to GDP. And GDP is tied directly to the amount of CO2 emissions that you have. Because the way that you can bring wealth into a country is through infrastructure, and infrastructure takes cheap, reliable energy. And there's a clear correlation that if you can bring people up from poverty, they'll start making decisions that are much longer term than they ever thought before. Right. If you're tried, if you're worried about where your next meal is going to come from or clean water or being able to heat your house, you're not thinking five or ten years down the road. Right. Right. And, Very you know, short term thinking. Exactly. Yeah. It's a it's a privilege of the Western world to be worried about a couple degrees of warming at by twenty one hundred, when most of the people that were are worried about it aren't even going to be on the planet. That's a real pr- privilege of being able to think in those long term ways. But there's 2.1 billion people on the planet that don't have access to clean drinking water. And I don't think they're so worried about a couple degrees of warming by 2100. So I really think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an anti-capitalist movement. It's meant to yeah. redistribute wealth. And it's masked in this way because that's a hard thing to sell because most people are pretty positive in terms of their views of capitalism, even though it's not perfect. And you know, greed is a is a problem and there's unethical practices because humans are involved and that's just right. part of the nature of it. But I grew up in, I was born in communist Poland in 1978. Mm-hmm. My parents grew up under that system and, you know, they, they left that system to come here for the exact reason that this was a capitalist system and there was economic opportunity for us. It's definitely against the bottom line in companies and I argue it's against the fundamental principles that academia is founded on, which is this freedom of exchange of ideas. Everything should be merit-based. We don't focus on immutable characteristics like the amount of melanin in someone's skin. Right. And also kind of shutting out the Western markets from the emissions framework discussion 
is the same thing as what we're seeing with with wokeness in 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 kind of the the religion of wokery. It's like no, you created the problem, or at least we're stating that you created the problem, and you can't be part of the discussion on the solution. Yeah, and even though the Western world is the one that's reduced their CO two emissions dramatically, but we're also the ones constructing these new forms of energy and creating these new forms of energy. That's right. That's right. And the reason that the global average continues to go up is really because China and India are still kind of developing out of uh, really what was a third world economy and really moving right. into first world economies really quickly. But, it, you know, it's it's very much green colonialism because in places like sub-Saharan Africa, you have the UN and John Kerry telling them that they're not going to fund any fossil fuel projects, even though we're funding the removal of their fossil fuels so we can get them here because we've overregulated our own markets and we need to rely on the resources that we're extracting from them or cobalt mines or lithium mines and you name it. Right. So this is very much green colonialism. It's the ultimate NIMBY campaign, right? Not in my backyard. We still want all this stuff. We don't want to reduce our standard of living. We still want all our widgets and our iPhones and everything like that. But we don't want to actually have to mine the stuff here because it's messy and you know, extracting natural resources from the planet has consequences. And, you know, if we just send that over to a place where there's no environmental regulation, they have no right. mind for human rights, we'll get that stuff for cheap and we can pat each other on the back and say, look, you know, we're reducing our emissions. It's, um, I find it to be a, a very poorly structured way of trying to appear that you are an environmentalist. And I think the legacy of this whole green revolution is really going to be how it was ex- exploitative of the poor people in places like Africa and Mongolia, where we're getting a lot of our rare earth elements from. I think you're exactly right on that. It's um, taking a turn for the worst and and it kind of, it, it creates this, it's become a, a, a partisan issue at this point. So it's just going to be locked in gridlock in the US, which is, you know, at times what the politicians want, right? But yeah, it's really concerning. It's really concerning. Unfortunately, it's become so politicized. I wish it wasn't. Um, I think that science is was always kind of the one that wasn't in politics. It's a very objective. You can look at data and and make you know con- come to certain conclusions. But now it's definitely become a very hot political topic, and I think that usually just slows all progress down. But democracy is messy, you know, and so that's kind of that's kind of how it goes. Yeah, democracy and capitalism definitely messy. Definitely, uh, definitely needs some improvement. But it's you know it's the best game in town, right? It's uh, you're not going to find anything any better, at least from my opinion. Yeah, I agree. My dad said, you know, when we left Poland, we knew we were going somewhere better. And he's like, now I see what's happening in the U.S. And I don't know where you're going to take your young kids because there's nowhere else to go. Yeah. There's no place better. So we either have to change it here and not let us slide back into what my parents left and. In under communist Poland, or you know, there's nowhere else to go. Yeah, no, you're right. There really isn't because it's uh, it's kind of like a cancer taking over aspects of the Western world. So we've got to uh, we've got to treat it right, and then and then carry on with prevention. Yeah, and I think you're seeing that though. I think I think people are starting to kind of wake up, and and they're getting hit in the pocketbook, so they're seeing their energy costs go up. That's a real motivator for folks. I think young people are starting to realize that. It doesn't feel good growing up and constantly thinking that the planet's going to end in a decade. It's not a healthy way to, right. to have a, you know, a, a, a good positive outlook. It's the worst way to motivate people. I mean, if you really wanted to motivate people to protect the environment, telling them that the planet's going to burn up in a decade is terrible. That's, 
you know, like why, what's my motivation to go and protect anything if the planet's going to go to hell anyway in, in a decade? And so the, the unforeseen consequences of all of this are, I just blow me away sometimes. When I was at a dinner in London last November, I, I was having a discussion with a gentleman who was bringing up the evangelical Christians in America and their kind of mass refusal to take the vaccine. He was bringing up how he thought that was ridiculous. I, uh, I brought up the fact that it's about the same as the climate activists in London who are gluing themselves to paintings or throwing tomato soup on paintings. They are also led by some sort of guru who is just espousing kind of doom and gloom or, or whichever and, you know, brainwashing them uh, is just just using that word for fun. And he agreed, which I thought was great. Right. It is the same thing. I think it's I think at, at this point, there's there's no denying that wokery is a religion. It, it's it's obviously fine to be uh, concerned about social justice issues. I think that's very important. But this whole kind of white people are wrong. It needs to be completely dismantled and all the wealth needs to be distributed is uh, is I mean, you can't deny that's just communism. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and if you ask questions or just bring anything up, you're a heretic. Right. Very similar to past religious teachings and, you know, Galileo trying to say that the earth wasn't the center of the universe. The, the Catholic Church basically was was prosecuting him for making these statements. And so I, I see it definitely online. If just asking questions or anything, there's no debate about the issue. It's just, well, you are a heretic and you are the problem. And the fact that you're asking questions proves our point that we need more of this re-education and right. more of this, you know, especially if you're a white male and you're talking about DEI, even though I'm talking about the interactions that I've had with a lot of the minority students. And, you know, remarkably, there's so many of the minority students that will reach out to me and say, thank you. It's, we're so tired of having a bunch of white people tell us that we need to be saved because usually these DEI initiatives are led by a bunch of white people. And, yeah. you know, it's like we're, we're just tokens to them. They use us as currency and they tell us that they know better for what we need in the future because, you know, we have this melanin in our skin and thus we're not capable of actually fighting for ourselves or something like that. So we need these white saviors to come around. The irony here is just, it's, it's remarkable, but I, I really think people are starting to open their eyes and just be like, wait a minute. Yeah, you know, I do too. How come folks aren't, you know, we had this unlearning racism group in our department. So the graduate students, this was an NSF funded initiative by, for graduate students called unlearning racism in geoscience. And first of all, I was like a little bit offended because that implies that I taught them how to be racist in geoscience. They learned it somehow. And as a geoscience faculty member, I thought you could have picked a better name. But what I noticed was that we had eight students that joined this, made a group in our university. And out of that, seven were white. One was a minority student. And I started going to the other students. We have a pretty diverse population. We're almost probably, we're close to half of our students would be considered underrepresented groups. Mm -hmm. And I started asking them and they were the first ones to tell me, no, we don't want to be a part of that. Like, we don't need you guys to come and save us. You know, this stuff is ridiculous. And it just makes us, it makes us feel like, you think that we are subpar and we somehow can't achieve on our own. So we need you guys to help us and pull us along when, you know, and it's, it's very insulting to them. And so they never, none of them joined the group. And that really opened my eyes when I was like, wow. So, 
you know, these, these white students think that they're doing something beneficial for these other students when really they're alienating them. And these students would never even consider that. They were like, no, we're, we're helping them. We're fighting for their social justice. And I said, I understand that's your intent and that's a good intent. But if the people that you're trying to help are telling you to your face that this is not what they want and that mm. this makes them feel like you are in disrespecting them, then you should stop. And they just, they, but they couldn't get it through their head. They thought that this was such a worthy goal and this was, you know, a noble cause. And, and no matter if it was having negative consequences and the people they were trying to save were telling them that they were going to continue on and keep saving these folks. It, 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 that was one of the biggest eye openers to me that as well-intentioned as this stuff may be, it is terrible for corporate world. It's terrible for academia. It yeah. has really negative cultural consequences down the road. I had lots of people, African-American folks on Twitter, tell me that when they used to apply to jobs, they used to put BAA after their degree, before affirmative action, because they wanted employers to know that they didn't get any of these benefits or these bumps. They earned this degree before any of this stuff was in place. And that was really important to them to share with the employer because they knew that if, if they didn't say that, then it was just kind of a cultural thing now that people would think that, ah, well, you know, he got a 3.8 right. at this good university, but how many times did he get it a, a little bump because of a, a, some sort of program? And they wanted to be very clear that they didn't receive any of that. And so I think there's long-term cultural implications for this stuff. And so, you know, hopefully it, the more discussions that we have like this, people will start to kind of realize that good intentions can have bad consequences. Yeah. And like, you know, the idea of American excellence, that's that's for any American from any color in any background. Right. So typical American exceptionalism be like, OK, well, we can overcome this. Let's do it. I don't know anyone in America who says that's just reserved for white people because that's what it makes. That's what makes America great. Absolutely. And I think that the majority of underrepresented groups that are particularly the immigrant class. So, you know, I think immigrants are much more sensitive to this. For sure. Because they saw kind of where they left. I would say that the m most of the people that I communicate with agree with that. And it's remarkable how many of the immigrant community, no matter what color, are very attuned to kind of the negative effects of DEI and the fact that, look, we came for equity of opportunity, but right. equity of outcomes can never be a thing because some people work harder than others. And we can't strive for equity of outcome because what you get is nobody tries because right. if everybody's outcome is the same, then why am I going to make these sacrifices to become a doctor, to become a surgeon or something like that takes a lot of work and you're broke a lot of the times and going through grad school and all these sacrifices. Why? If at the end of the day, we're all going to have the same outcome. So equity of opportunity, I think is really important. And that's kind of the American dream. Right. And I think it exists. I mean, we can see that it exists, but equity of outcome seems to be the direction that the DEI folks are pushing this, which to me is socialism. I mean, you know, there's no real other way to put it. Do you think DEI in academia is going to be reversed anytime soon? Or is this, are we, are we looking at a few generations of DEI being entrenched in academia in America? That's a, that's a tough question. I think that I've gotten a lot of response from parents that say, look, you know, I was going to send my kid to a public institution and I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. I'm going to either try to send him to vocational training or maybe community college or a Catholic private or, you know, a religious right. private school. 
because they are a little bit less prone to these types of things. I think if parents start to hold back and not send their kids, the universities are basically beholden to the amount of students they get. Most public institutions don't get a ton of funding from the state or the local governments anymore. So it's really tuition. That's why you've seen tuition go up so much. And then the R1s are really beholden to the federal funding agencies. Now, the federal funding agencies have all essentially taken an ideological stance on this stuff. And so that makes us have to play the game as public institutions a little bit. But if they start to see enrollment drop or at least enrollment shifting from their public institutions to more private institutions, I think that they're going to start to change their tune. I've already been seeing some reports about corporations and institutions, academic institutions that are having some financial difficulties. It seems like some of the first positions that are on the chopping block are ESG and DEI positions. I think that's primarily because they don't have a revenue stream. So we here at the University of Alabama, we pay our our vice president of DEI something like $275,000 a year. There's no, she brings in no money. There's no revenue stream for her. If I bring in a grant, they take over 50%. Plus I teach 373 students this semester in class. And so they're paying 400 and something dollars a credit. And that's, there's $500,000 there just in revenue. These folks don't have a revenue stream. And so mm-hmm. it all comes back to money. If the for corporations, sure. you know, like you mentioned before, if, if they start to see it in the bottom line, I think people are going to start changing. And from the response I've seen from parents, I think you're going to see enrollment in public institutions, particularly those that have really embraced this stuff, start to decline. And I think that the minute that happens, they're going to reverse and start marching the opposite direction. Whether they really you know, pull the reins back all the way, I don't know. This stuff is now pretty entrenched in young folks too. A lot of our young faculty members, the first thing they want to know is, what are our DEI initiatives in the department? And I'm like, we're an earth science department. You should be asking like, what equipment do we have to achieve the measurements you want to take? Or, you know, what funding agencies are we working with? And they're, they're coming in here and asking about the DEI initiatives in the department. And so it's an uphill battle. But if, if enrollment starts to take a hit, I think you're going to see a pretty rapid reversal in this stuff. Well, thanks for that, Matthew. Uh, you've left the door open on another discussion, uh, maybe another episode about how DEI even makes sense in earth sciences, but um, we won't get there today. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's very interesting. Thanks, Chad. Thanks for having me.